Matthew 12, 14, the Bible says, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against Him, how they might destroy Him. But when Jesus knew it, He withdrew Himself from thence, and great multitudes followed Him, and He healed them all, and charged them that they should not make Him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the reading of the Word of God, for the songs that we have sung. Thank you for the privilege we have this morning to be gathered together for the Word taught. Lord, for the prayer request shared and for the burden shared. And Lord, for the privilege that we have to worship together. And I pray now, Father, this Word that we have just read, Lord, you promised that it would not return void. We know that it will accomplish what you send it forth to do. But Lord, I pray this morning that this Word would have free course, that it would run exactly where it needs to run. And I pray that it would do in every life that that would bring glory and honor unto your great name. Lord, I'm aware this morning I'm not the only one preaching, not the only one teaching. Lord, all around the world, this Word will be open, and men will hear the truth today. And I pray that, Father, they would, their hearts would be open as well, and they'd receive the Word, uh, Father. And may that Word received, Lord, result in a change of life to Your glory and to Your honor. Lord, You know what Wessel North Baptist Church needs to hear this morning, and I pray the Spirit of God would speak to each of us, Lord, today exactly what you would have us to have. I pray, Father, you'd help me to rightly divide your word. I pray, Father, that we'd magnify Christ above all things. And, Lord, when everything's said and done and this Lord's day comes to an end, Lord, may it be a day that would be pleasing to you. And may our life, our actions, everything we do this day, may it be in accordance with your word and may it be to your glory and to your honor. Again, we do pray, Father, for the request that was mentioned earlier, for the churches that were mentioned, Lord, for the individuals. We pray you would work in each of those situations and give grace and give strength. And we'll thank you and praise you for all you do. We love you, Father, and thank you for being our Lord and Savior. For it's in your precious name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Matthew is showing us again this morning the great character of our Lord Jesus in contrast, in comparison to that of the Pharisees. And in calling attention to Jesus' character, set in opposition to that of the religious leaders of our Lord's day, Matthew is not simply wanting us to stand back and admire Jesus, or just stand back and ooh and ah at Him, at what a great man that He is. Matthew wants us to believe Him. He wants us to trust Him. He is calling upon men to commit to Him. He's calling upon men to take up their cross and to follow Him. He's calling upon men to trust Him, to love Him, to believe Him, to worship Him, and to be His disciples. 
That is the purpose of the preaching of the Word of God. It is not just to give you information about the Gospel of Matthew, information about Pharisees, or about a man with a withered hand, or disciples, or about what happened at a certain city on a certain day. All that comes from the Word of God is to point us to Christ, to reveal to us our sinfulness, to reveal to us God's holiness, and to reveal to us that only Christ can make up that difference and only Christ can span that great gulf. Our righteousness and our right standing with God is in and through and only in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Last Sunday morning from Matthew 12, verse 14 through 16, Jesus' character is revealed by Matthew through our Lord's actions. His actions stand in contrast to the disciples who in verse 14 sought how they might destroy Jesus because of His actions on the Sabbath day. Jesus, Matthew tells us in verse 15, withdrew Himself, which speaks volumes of His character. Our Lord did not stay, but our Lord withdrew Himself. Whenever the multitudes, He went to the multitudes, when they came to Him, He withdrew Himself from that place. They followed Him, and our Lord showed compassion upon the multitudes and upon those who needed His grace and His healing touch. Most men, like the Pharisees, seek to build their own kingdom, and when their kingdom comes under attack, they don't withdraw, but rather they go forcefully and try to defend that kingdom. Anyone who disagrees with them or is a challenge to them or stands in opposition to them, then they have to purge themselves from their adversaries. That is why they are trying to destroy Jesus. His message, everything that He's about, stands in contrast, stands in opposition to legalized religion. Religion that is based on man's tradition, man that has taken part of the Word of God, added to it what he wanted to add to it, and then require that others bow to it as he interprets it or as he sees it. But our Lord did not respond in the same way of the Pharisees. His actions show us His great mercy, His great humility, His great love. He withdraws Himself. And I mentioned last Sunday morning, gave several other scriptural references throughout the pages of of the New Testament where our Lord, whenever men would try to make Him king or men would try to promote Him, our Lord would withdraw Himself in humility. So in verse 14, 15, and 16, Matthew shows us our Lord's character through the actions that our Lord revealed, the way that He responded to how the Pharisees questioned and treated Him. This morning I want you to look for a few moments with me at how Jesus' character, Matthew, reveals to us our Lord's character through prophecy. Our Lord will, uh, his, his character will be revealed because He is fulfilling prophecy that was made about Him in verses 17 through verse number 21. As a matter of fact, Christ's entire ministry, everything He did, who He was, how He came, everything that our Lord did was prophesied some six to seven centuries before He was born. And Matthew quotes often from the Old Testament prophets, especially Isaiah. Isaiah seems to be one of his favorite. And to Matthew, this prophecy that our Lord is fulfilling, to Matthew it is convincing evidence of our Lord's deity. It is convincing evidence of our Lord's claim to be who He said that He was. 
What is different about our Savior? What's different about our Lord? If you go to someone and you're trying to witness to them and you're telling them what Christ has done for you, they may in turn tell you what Buddha has done for them or what Confucius has done for them or what some God they're following has done for them. But if you tell them about your Savior, if you tell them about Jesus Christ, and you show them from Scripture prophecies fulfilled, there's no other religious system in the world that can stand on those grounds. Our Savior is who He said that He is, first and foremost because He said that He was, but also because prophecy, fulfilled prophecy, declares Him to be. He was the Savior that Isaiah prophesied. He was the one born of a virgin, as the Bible says. He was the Son of God and is the Son of God, as the prophets foretold. So to Matthew, this is convincing evidence of his deity. The Pharisees have a question about that. They have a question about his authority to allow his disciples to pluck corn on the Sabbath. They have a question about His authority to heal on the Sabbath day. They have a question about all of that. Matthew says the answer can be settled by His actions and His responses, but it can also be settled by fulfilled prophecy. So in verse number 17 through 21, Matthew takes us back to Isaiah 42, verse number 1 through verse number 4. Let me read that prophecy from which Matthew is directly quoting and Jesus is fulfilling. Isaiah 42, 1, Isaiah said, some six to seven hundred years before Christ was ever born, He said this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. That was prophecy from the lips of Isaiah. Six hundred, possibly seven hundred years before Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Now God's servant has come. God's servant has arrived. God's servant is there upon this earth. He is ministering. And the prophecy said about Him, Isaiah has prophesied. Now Matthew is saying it is being fulfilled in God's servant right here in front of our eyes. In that passage that I just read from Isaiah, and in that passage that Matthew is quoting, he directly appeals to the words of the Old Testament prophet, which the Pharisees and others would be familiar with, and he applies them to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned this briefly last Sunday in verse 18, where Matthew just writing says, Behold my servant. Jesus had charged the multitudes that they should not make Him known. He had charged them as He is healing them and ministering to them that they are not at this point to make Him known. And He says you're not to do that so the prophecy can be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. What our Lord is saying is, I will be revealed, everything will be made known in its right time. God will see to it because prophecy has, has said 
what would happen. And that's a word of encouragement for us today. We don't have to figure it all out. We don't have to make everything happen. Thank God it'll happen just as the Lord said it would. It will happen when our Lord said it would. And it will happen as as long as our Lord needs for it to happen. We don't have to worry about that. Jesus said it will all be unfolded just like the prophet Isaiah said. And then he quotes prophecy about himself. He is talking about himself with all of these listeners standing around. Notice he begins in verse 18, Behold my servant. What he is saying is it's a call. It's a call for you to sit up. It's a call for you to look. It's a call for you to take notice. It's a call for you to pay attention. In the previous two stories of the plucking of the corn and then of the healing of the withered man's hand, the Pharisees are focusing upon their oral tradition of the law. They are focusing on the things that they've added to the Sabbath day law. They're focusing upon all of that. And now our Lord is saying, fix your eyes upon God's servant. Behold the prophecy. Listen to what was prophesied. Look at what is happening right in front of your very eyes. You see, the Pharisees are angry. I read last week in Luke's gospel where Luke said they were mad. They're irate. They are appalled at our Lord's actions upon the Sabbath. But Matthew here in his writing is telling them and he's telling us to take a close look at God's servant. Take a close look at God's Son. If you think you have seen everything there is to see about God's servant, you are sadly mistaken. If you think you have figured out everything there is about the Son of God, you are sadly wrong. Brother, we need a fresh glimpse of our Lord. And that glimpse comes through the pages of His precious Word. Notice how He is described in our text in verse 18. This servant of God, the Son of God, He is the servant whom God has chosen. That word chosen means that God made an irrevocable choice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very second person of the Godhead, the very Son of God. He is not some man that rose to the ranks by his personality. He is not someone who got promoted through politics. He is not someone that made it on his own. He is not someone that others paved the way for him to be in the limelight. No, he's God's servant. He's the one that God had chosen to be our Savior, to be our Redeemer, and to be our Lord. I'm glad my Savior is no Gandhi. My Savior is no Mother Teresa. My Savior is no human being that just got lucky and everybody liked him and then crucified him and he became a hero and a martyr. No, he was God's sovereign choice from before the foundation of the world to be our Redeemer, to be our Savior. Remember, it was the Father who sent Him into the world. And Isaiah said, look at Him. Behold Him. Matthew says, behold, my servant, take, put your eyes upon Christ. We often look at worldly leaders who have gotten where they are because they were born in a royal family. Some because they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Others because they were born in a political family that had leverage and could help them get where they were. 
Others got there because they were evil dictators and tyrants and they just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And if you sit around and focus on all of that and behold all of that, you're going to be sadly discouraged. Hear the words of Isaiah and Matthew. Hear the words of our Lord this morning. Behold my servant. Fix your eyes upon him this morning. He who is altogether lovely. He who is God's chosen son that was sent to this world that you and I might be saved. Matthew wants us to look at God's servant in the light of Scripture. This is God's servant chosen by God. It goes on and says, Beloved, but chosen by God. Christ was God's elect man for the redemption of sinners. 1 Peter 1, 18-20 tells us that Christ was chosen before the foundation of the world to redeem us and to be our Savior. This is no fly-by-night leader standing here in the cornfield, in the synagogue, before the Pharisees. This is the very Son of God, the fulfillment of prophecy. I know you understand mentally, but do you understand spiritually? Have you ever confessed it? Have you ever confessed it that Jesus Christ is God's Son, chosen by God, sent into this world to be God's servant, to be our Savior, to be the Redeemer, to be the one that would atone between man and God, to be the only hope of salvation, to be the only anchor of the soul. He's the only one that can bring eternal life to dead men and women like you and like me. Behold, my servant is the prophecy that Matthew is quoting. Although Jesus was God in the flesh, God's equal, God's equal in power, glory, attributes, eternity, He is nevertheless God's beloved servant. Paul tells us in the book of the Philippians how he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant. Christ willingly became a servant. Now in our text in verse 18, the Greek word for servant here is a different word than what you see in other places of Scripture. But this word here that, that is used in our, in our text, He was God's servant. Beloved, He's my servant. Behold, my servant. Matthew is speaking about uh, an intimate slave who was treated like a son. God said, look at, look at my son. Look at my son who became a servant. He is a servant, but he is saying he's an intimate slave who was treated like a son. I mean, there, there's a unique relationship there. And God is wanting us to see Christ in that relationship. That is who He is. Matthew is making the point, and he wants this to stick out. The very one, the disciple that the Pharisees hated, the very one that they were seeking to destroy there in verse number 14, the very one that Luke tells us they became angry and mad about, God wants them to know, this is the son that I love, 
This is the son that I love dearly. This is the son that is intimate. There's a relationship between me and my son, between the father and the son, and the Pharisees knew nothing about that. Hey, listen, our Savior, God's servant, our Savior is God's son, God's servant. There is an intimate relationship between the father and the son, and you and I share in that today because the servant came to die for you and for me. Before He came, you and I were enemies of God. Before He came, you and I were alienated from God. Before, you and, before He came, you and I were estranged from God. Before He came, you and I had no hope of ever being near God, with God, talking to God, even thinking about God in those terms. But thank God He came. His servant came. And because He came now, you and I are His children and we share in that same relationship. It's always encouraging to think of the love the Father has for His only begotten Son. We sing a lot of songs about the love of God for us and, and we should. The love of God is greater far than, than pen you know, can tell. Uh, yes, Jesus loves me. Uh, all the songs we sing about the wondrous love that God has for us, and He does. But please don't forget the love that He had for His Son. God the Father loved His Son. And that is what the gospel is calling us here to do. Matthew is saying, this individual, you Pharisees want to crucify, destroy, that you want to kill. I want you to know He is the very chosen and the very beloved servant of God. And He is also the very one that pleases the very soul of the Heavenly Father. You imagine how angry the Pharisees were when they saw His disciples rubbing that corn, plucking corn, rubbing it to eat. You imagine the anger that swelled in them when they looked at the Son of God and saw Him reach out on the Sabbath and heal a man's right hand. Can you imagine how they felt about Jesus? Matthew says, I want to remind you how the Father feels about Him. The Father loves Him because He chose Him. The Father is well pleased with what He is seeing His Son do because He has come to fulfill the Father's plan. Listen, Christ didn't come just to make you happy and healthy and all that good stuff. Christ came to do the Father's will. He came to please the Father. And brother, it really... It really, at the end of the day, when the sun sets, either in time or eternity, it really doesn't make a lick of difference what you think about God's Son. I'm here to tell you the Father is well pleased with what His Son did. The Father is well pleased with what His Son accomplished here upon this earth. As a matter of fact, that's the only reason I'm saved and the only reason I can remain saved today God, I'm not saved because God's pleased with me. I'm not saved because God will ever be pleased with what I do or fail to do. But oh, thank God He's pleased with His Son and what His Son did for me and what His Son continually does in me. He's well pleased. He takes pleasure in the work of His Son. Pharisees cuss what Jesus is doing, but the Father takes pleasure in what His Son is doing. He is the pleasing Son. The Father takes pleasure in the character of His Son. And the Father takes pleasure in us because we are accepted in Him through His Son. 
You say, I want to do enough good works that the Lord will be pleased. Can't do enough. You say, I, I, I want to do it. I want to do it. Nope, can't happen that way. Oh, but when He sees you in Christ and Christ in you, thank God He is pleased with what His Son has done in us and for us. How different this is compared to the Pharisees who take pleasure in nothing. They take pleasure in no one except that little group of people who live like they want them to live, talk like they want them to talk, dress like they want them to dress, walk like they want them to walk, and do and not do the things that they tell them to do. That's who they are pleased in. I'm glad my father is pleased in his son. And if my faith is in him, thank God that makes it right between me and the heavenly father. The Father loves the Son. He's the beloved of the Son because the Son is the perfect representation of the Father. The Father loves the Son because He and the Son created the universe together. They were there when everything was made. They worked it together, all of it, every bit of it. The Father loves the Son because the Son is focused on the Father's glory and He obeys the Father in order to get His will accomplished. Now this is all in contrast to the Pharisees. The Father loves the Son because the Son is willing to lay down His life for you and me to fulfill the Father's plan for redemption. John 3.35 The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into His hand. John 5.20 For the Father loveth the Son and shows Him all things that, that He does. And He will show Him greater works than these that ye may marvel. John 10, 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. Pharisees are irritated, agitated, angry, mad, frustrated. They're wanting to kill Him. And yet the Father is saying, My soul is well pleased with what He did. I saw Him allow His disciples to pluck corn on the Sabbath. I heard what He said in response. The Father said, I'm well pleased. I saw my son go in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and I saw him heal that man with a withered hand, and the father said, I am well pleased with that. Fast forward to the cross where he will suffer and bleed and die, and the father will say again, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I want you to know today the father loves the son, and the son loves us. And because the Son has redeemed us and saved us, then everything is well-pleasing in the sight of Almighty God. Now you may be asking this morning, Preacher, what does all this have to do with me? The answer is, this is how you and I come to Christ. This is how we get saved. Those of us who are saved and are in Christ know that the Father is well-pleased, not because of us, but because of His Son. Listen to Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Ephesians 1, 3-6 
Because the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father, and did what was well-pleasing to the Father, because the Son was chosen of the Father to do the Father's will, if you add all of that up, we get to go to heaven. We are saved because of all of that. Matthew is taking Isaiah's prophecy written 600 plus years before, bringing it all the way over now as the very Messiah is standing there literally, physically on earth. And Matthew is saying, quit looking to all that other stuff and look at Him. Get your eyes upon Him and keep your eyes upon Him. For if you follow Him, you will see Him go do the Father's will. You will see Him die. You will see Him buried. You will see Him resurrect. You will see Him ascend. And one day you will see Him return. And it will all be for the glory and the honor of God. What a Savior. Look with me in verse 19 through 21 at the promises of the Heavenly Father. The promises of the Heavenly Father to the servant of the Lord. He makes some very powerful promises here in verses 19 through 21. Talking about his servant, he said, He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Now that's like putting a knife in the heart of these standing there. They didn't want any Gentiles getting saved. They didn't want that at all. That's the last thing that a Pharisee would have ever wanted was a bunch of stinking dogs like you and me to be a part of the kingdom of God. But look at the promises that are made here. First of all, the servant will be qualified and the servant will be equipped for the ministry that he came to do. That's what he's saying in verse 19. That he will not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice. He's telling us how Jesus will minister as a servant of God. And he came and ministered exactly like the Father wanted him to minister. He was equipped for exactly what the Father sent him here to do. You know, God never, God never calls us to something that he does not equip us for. And he did not call his son for something that he did not equip him for. He gave him exactly what he needed. And though his son was equal to him in glory and power, yet as mediator the father equipped him, and he tells us this in, uh, in verse number 18, by putting his spirit upon him. He was equipped with the spirit of God and fitted for his task in redemption. God put the spirit upon his son so his son could do exactly what he sent him here to do. Secondly, not only was our Savior, the servant, qualified and equipped through the power of the Spirit, but secondly, our God's servant, our Savior, will be Savior of the world. It wasn't, it wasn't enough that He come to be Savior of Israel. Verse 21 says, He will show judgment. Some translations use the word justice. He will show justice to the Gentiles. And in His name shall the Gentiles trust. Now again, if you were a first century Jew... Listening to these words, you would have been sadly disappointed. You don't want, a, you don't want any Gentiles. You want, you want the Jewish nation to be saved, the Jewish people that adhere to your law. You want God to save them and put them in the kingdom. They wanted justice, but they wanted a sword. They wanted God to kill all the Gentiles. They wanted, they wanted that to happen. They wanted Christ to come and get rid of the Roman government and get rid of everybody that opposed the Jewish way of thinking. But Christ came that men and women, boys and girls like you and I, 
could be saved by His marvelous grace. The justice has to do with the gospel. It said in verse 18, the last statement, He shall show judgment to the Gentiles. And verse 21, in His name shall the Gentiles trust. That has to do with the gospel. The prophecy to Christ is Christ. The prophecy that He is going to proclaim to both Jew and Gentile is that there is righteousness, there is a justice with God available, and it's available through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ to all who will repent and to all who will believe. And Christ proclaimed that on the cross when He died. God's justice has been satisfied, and He alone can justify us by faith. But on the other side of this glorious judgment is the judgment and justice of God that will fall upon all of those who fail to repent. He says in 2 Thessalonians 1 7, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who will not obey the gospel, those of you listening today who will not obey the gospel, the future does not look good for you. It said, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe. There is coming a day of vengeance upon all of those who rejected the Son of God. The Pharisees standing here in this particular situation. Those religious leaders and, and, and scoffers who will stand at the foot of His cross. Those unbelievers in Rome who mocked and persecuted God's people. They will be a part of that vengeance. And right here in our own city and county and in our own families, those who have rejected the gospel will face that day of judgment. But if you're sitting here this morning under the judgment of sin and under the wrath of God, here's the good news. Thank God God's wrath has been satisfied in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you're unsaved today, call upon the name of the Lord. Cry out unto God for saving grace. Believe the gospel. And thank God salvation can be yours. Thirdly, Christ will fulfill His work without drawing attention to Himself. And He will fulfill His work in total Victory, verses 19 through 20. It's amazing how Christ ministered compared to the Pharisee. Now, you can go back to Matthew 6 when Jesus talked about uh, praying. He talked about those men who loved to do what? Stand on the street corners. You remember that? They loved to stand on the street corners. And in the synagogues, they loved to stand there so their voices could be heard and they could be draw attention from people. That's kind of like... that's. That's Phariseeism. It's called legalism today. It's called people who are more spiritual than you and they know more about the Bible than you. And so they constantly want, to be, want you to see them and hear them so they can appear to be better related to God than you are. But I want you to listen carefully to how our Lord, God's beloved servant, I want you to hear how Matthew tells us, how Isaiah said, how he ministered when he was here upon this earth. Verse 19, he shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the street. Verse 19 means that Jesus, when He comes to bring the message of the gospel and the message of the kingdom, He will not be out in the streets publicly quarreling, crying out with a loud voice in public places. 
Now, before you say this contradicts, this, this in no way contradicts John 7, 37, where Jesus stood at the last day of the feast and stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come up to me. This prophecy is not saying that Jesus did not preach in an in a, in a audible tone where people could hear him. He did raise his voice. What it is saying is this. He will not be out in the street as a rabble rouser. He will not be out there trying to make a case for people to follow him in the same manner in which the Pharisees were making their case to be followed by men. On occasions, our Lord did cry aloud in public places. But Isaiah and Matthew both say that our Lord was no rebel and no rabble rouser. He didn't go out to stir up people into an emotional frenzy in order to build His kingdom. I'm going to tell you that's unchristlike, whether it's out in the public street or whether it's behind a pulpit inside. We are not here. We are not here to argumentatively and to emotionally stir up people into a frenzy. Leave that to the politicians. Leave that to the world to do that. We are here to present the truth, and that's exactly what Jesus did. I think it's interesting when you consider that in many of our churches, and especially in preaching and proclaiming the Word of God, the preacher who's the loudest, the preacher who appears to be the most authoritative, the preacher who has the ability to stir people emotionally is often associated with spirituality. I want to call your attention back to the Word of God now, but don't let the Word, don't let the word convince you of anything here. But go back. That's a little sarcastic. But verse 18, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, in whom my soul is well pleased. Notice now, I will put my spirit upon him. And Jesus was not out in the public streets crying and hollering and carrying on so men would only hear His voice. And what He did, He did with the Holy Spirit upon Him. You don't have to do those other things in order to have the Holy Spirit. But in our circles, we've often been taught that that is a sign of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what it's a sign of. It's a sign of somebody being a rabble-rouser and loud and authoritative, but it has no direct connection with the Holy Spirit of God. Well, preacher, that busts my balloon. Well, kapow. It ought to be busted. Read, read this text very carefully. God's servant, filled with the Spirit, loved of God, well-pleasing to God, when he was ministering here upon this earth, full of the Holy Spirit, did not build his kingdom in that manner. He didn't do it. Now, again, don't misunderstand what I just read. Jesus, on occasions, raised his voice. He did on occasion preach and proclaim truth publicly, both inside and outside. But he did not, look at, verse, look, look at the verse, he did not strive in verse number 19. He did not strive or cry in the street. He did not go out to build his kingdom on excitement, and he did not go out to build it on emotion. A couple other things here that ought to encourage you. Look at verse 20. A bruised reed... Shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench? Do you know what the Pharisees had just done on the Sabbath day? They had taken the bruised reed of hungry disciples, and they tried to crush it. Right? They took These disciples are hungry, wanting to eat, and instead of helping them, they wanted to crush them. What did they do? That smoking flax 
in the, in the synagogue with a right withered hand, instead of helping that man, instead of helping him, they wanted to crucify him because Jesus had healed him. Our Lord didn't come to take bruised reeds and break them. And our Lord didn't come to take lamps that were about to go out and just snuff them out completely. Thank God He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Let me remind you, the Pharisees did not want bruised reeds in their synagogues. The Pharisees did not want smoking flaxes among their numbers. They did not want withered hand people among them. They did not want bleeding women with 18 years of misery to come in their place. They did not want Zacchaeus to pay their debts and come and be a part of the family of God. They didn't want any of that. Thank God our Lord came for every bit of that. Our Lord came for people like you and people like me who were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. People who were strangers and outcasts. He didn't come to break us. He didn't come to put the flame out. Thank God He came to give life and life more abundantly. Behold my servant. How many people do you think there are today around the world whose main goal is to snuff out a certain class of people, a certain race of people, a certain nationality of people, a certain social level of people, a certain group of people. I mean, you probably got a snuff list yourself that you'd like to snuff out, maybe even in your own family. Oh, I'd like to snuff them out if I had a chance. Our Lord didn't come to snuff out. Our Lord came to say, whosoever will, let him come. Look around here today. Aren't you glad the Lord didn't go ahead and break the bruised reeds of alcoholics? Aren't you glad the Lord didn't go ahead and put the fire out of those with broken homes, adulterers, adulteresses, fornicators, liars, thieves? You say, well, I never considered myself to be any of them. You're lost. You're lost. You are that and much, much more. But thank God, God's servant came to minister God's way. And God's kingdom's not built on politics. And God's kingdom doesn't stand under the American flag. God's kingdom doesn't stand under the Canadian flag. God's kingdom rests on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Him. And he, this is going to be, listen, he didn't, he didn't come to bruise, to bruise he takes the bruise, the smoldering, the weak, the worthless, the lame, the sick, the blind, the lonely, and everyone else the world in the world. Everyone else who the worldly kingdom is embarrassed to have, He calls them. He calls them. He calls them to come unto Him. And thank God He does. And He does that in verse 20, till He send forth judgment Unto victory. That means in spite of the Pharisees, in spite of the opposition, in spite of the persecution, in spite of the rejection, our Lord is victorious, and hallelujah, the gospel wins. Amen? You say, it don't look like it's winning today. You're looking at the wrong place. Behold God's servant. L listen to the prophecy. I want to go back to Isaiah 42, 4. It says, He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth. Thank God. That means that Jesus is victorious. 
and the gospel is victorious. Well, preacher, I just shared the gospel with a family member last week, and they rejected and walked away. I've been, I've been preaching the gospel for over four decades now, and every Sunday people walk away, walk away, have no interest in it at all. You say, well, it must not be working. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till He has set judgment in the earth, and the isles, or the nations, shall wait for His law. Now, in spite of what your interpretation of the end-time events are, no matter which way you believe things are going to unfold, I promise you this on the authority of God's Word, Christ ain't losing. He's not losing. The gospel wins. Jesus is not going to give up. Our Lord never gets discouraged. Let me just share this with you. There's never a bad day in the kingdom of heaven. He just builds His kingdom day after day, hour after hour. We think we're so smart. We walk out of here every Sunday and try to decide whether we've had a good service or not. We walk out of here and try to decide whether the kingdom was advanced or whether it wasn't. We walk out of here and try to, try to decide whether we succeeded or whether we failed. It's not on what you see here. Thank God His kingdom will not fail. What a picture of the character of our Christ. And I want to close again this morning with similar words I closed with last Sunday. Listen to what Isaiah and Matthew says. Behold my servant. Church, focus on Jesus. Don't be intimidated by dictators. Don't be intimidated by presidents or vice president, past, present, or future. Don't be intimidated by governors, senators, congressmen, mayors, even legalistic authoritative preachers. Don't be intimidated by those voices. Look at God's servant. I do try. God being my helper, I try to obey 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. I try to pray for kings and for all that are in authority. I try to do that, and you should as well. The Bible teaches us that we should. But I want to remind you again before I close, there is a difference between the kingdom and the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. And according to Philippians 3.20 that I read last week, our citizenship, our citizenship, is in heaven, from where also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no Savior coming to us from any other kingdom other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So living in a world where Pharisees are still angry that we're not living by their law, and living in a world where people want to take the hurting and the bruised and the weak and the sinful and the withered lives and wanting to throw a social program at them or just keep them away from, the, from those of us that are better than they. Look at your Savior. He came to stand under sycamore trees. He came to talk to people at Wales. He came to open blind eyes. He came to call rich young rulers 
He came to explain to the intelligent like Nicodemus what a real birth was. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And you either were or you still are. And I challenge you today, behold God's servant. Father, I want to thank you this morning for the fulfillment of prophecy. I want to thank you, Lord, that the prophecy written about you six centuries before you were born in Bethlehem, you fulfilled. Lord, you didn't go out in the streets to raise a rutkus, to stir a mob up, to incite a riot. You went out there, Lord, to take truth, to show compassion, to declare sin, to declare righteousness. You were God's servant here on earth, and He loved because He chose you. You did His will. You fulfilled His will in everything that you did. And because He was pleased with your sacrifice, and you accepted us in the Beloved, then, Lord, we are there with you and the Father, and we thank you for it. I pray for those here today that are unsaved, or those who, for whatever reason, have only a shallow profession of faith somewhere way back in their life, but never has been a change of life. Father, I pray the remainder of this day, they would open their Bible and take a close look at you and what you came to do and what you did and may they find a place of repentance today and call on the name of the Lord. For those of us today who are being influenced and intimidated by voices from the political world and the pulpit world and the legalistic religious world, those of us that are intimidated by all of those things, Lord, forgive us and help us again to keep our focus upon Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would love you and that we would be satisfied as well in the finished work that you did for us on the cross. Thank you again for your word. And I pray, Father, as we go from this place, and as we live each day and move closer to your return, I pray, Father, that we would share the story, share the message, share the gospel, that we would minister in the way that you ministered, so the Father would be pleased with us. And may you be glorified in everything that is said and done. And we'll thank you for all you do. And again, Lord, I want to tell you that I love you. And I thank you for being my Redeemer, for being my Savior. And Lord, I thank you that this Gentile was able to place his trust in you because of who you are and who you shall ever be. We love you, Father. In your precious name we pray. Amen.